Welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast, where every week we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under, with your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio. Hello and welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. I'm your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio, and today... Today, I guess you can call it a mini-sode of sorts. Uh, What I wanted to do is just recap some of what happened in Season 1, let you in on what will be going on in Season 2, and air the rest of my interview with author Robert Dean from Episode 13. Uh, Don't forget, if you're listening to this episode between January 23rd and January 30th of 2017, uh, the random giveaway is still going on. And to remind you of the giveaway, what we're going to do is we're going to be giving away five signed copies of Robert Dean's book, uh, The Red Seven. And how we're going to go about that is you post this episode on social media. Uh, The easiest way is if you do it on Twitter, uh, you tag me in it uh, at Digging Podcast, tag Robert in it at Robert underscore Dean. If you're doing it on other platforms, basically screenshot it, send me an email at diggingsixfeetunder at gmail.com, and we'll pick five random winners by next week. Uh, What we'll do is we'll send you a signed copy of Robert Dean's book, The Red Seven, and, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. Uh, You promote the podcast for me, get the word out. You get the word out certainly on Robert, make people aware of his writing, and in the end, you get a signed copy of his book, so... Definitely please take advantage of that. Uh, To move on to the season one recap, um, you know, whether you're watching this for the first time or you're a veteran of the show and you're in a big rewatch with me, uh, you know, you can see how major steps have been taken by all the characters. Uh, Let's start out with David, who is, you know, so scared, timid of himself and others in the pilot, Uh, you know, whether it be being gay or speaking up for himself and, you know, Uh, Along the 13 episodes, you could see how those two certainly run parallel. But we see by uh, season's end, David is fighting the fight. You know, he can't sit quiet anymore. And as stated by my guest in episode 12, Ken Schneck, coming out is a work in progress. It's a continuous thing that you have to keep coming out to everyone. And while David came out more and more by the final two episodes, there's still some of that timidness and internalized homophobia there. But it's nice to see David grow over the 13 episodes into what he is now and to see where he will go from here uh, to placate to the idea that, you know, that cliche of sort of the night is darkest just before dawn. He hit rock bottom in episode 11 in Vegas when he gets arrested with the prostitute. And it's after this he starts to make his incline into being more comfortable, uh, you know, with his internalized homophobia Um, to move on to Nate, you know. He started out the series as someone who didn't want to be anywhere near the funeral home or the funeral business and, you know, was basically ready to bury his father, head back to Seattle. And as sort of families or family businesses do, it, you know, it sucked Nate into its vortex. Uh, Nate went from not wanting to be bothered to, you know, making business decisions, funeral decisions over David without consulting David, you know, to being proud and happy to stay in L.A. to become a funeral director. Uh, Nate thus far is obviously the most outspoken fisher of the four, and it's refreshing. You know, uh, a common saying I said throughout each episode when referring to Nate, I just sort of did a, you know, uh, that's Nate being Nate, and he's unique in that way as a character. Uh, he shines amongst the cast of a characters who have so much reserve. Uh, I'm not doing spoilers for people who listen that this is, you know, their first time watching, but we're about to see Nate's brain condition that 
comes up in episode 13, start to play in a major way. Uh, to move on to Ruth, um, we see how tender of a soul she is uh, all throughout 13 episodes. Dealing with, you know, losing her husband, Nathaniel, and dealing with the fact that she cheated on Nathaniel. Um, I love Ruth's storyline, and we see something that goes largely unsaid in television of someone of her age is, you know, her own sexual needs and, you know, dealing with her son being gay. Uh, I love the way the show tiptoed around Ruth trying to come to grips with it slowly, you know, the writing of the plotting in each episode. Uh, I just love the way the Fishers as a whole suppress a lot of stuff and it's hard for them to talk to each other. And in episode 12, when she finally has the conversation with David about her son being gay, it, it's a beautiful dialogue. Uh, Claire, you know, I, I have to say, I found myself each episode sort of putting her storyline off to the side. She had, and uh, you know, it's a thing I repeat a bunch of times, the great thing about Six Feet Under is you have a wildly different perspective on it depending on your age. Uh, with Claire, this time, uh, you know, she had too much teenage angst for my liking. You know, this being my ugh, umpteenth time rewatch, uh, I do see how clearly she's basically attracted to danger and attracted to what's bad for her. Uh, I felt her storylines were a bit detached from the main Fisher storylines, but we can't forget she's about 15 years younger than her brothers. So in, in terms of that, she is somewhat of a forgotten sibling, uh, despite how much Ruth tries to connect with her over the season. As far as the Brenda, Billy, and Chenowitz are concerned, um, I've said many times across the season, I have a hard time digesting their storyline, uh, Billy especially. Uh, I did like how it ties together in the finale, and perhaps it's because that's when Billy is at his clearest state of mind, but, you know, if you're a first-timer, um, you know, buckle in, this storyline is about to get really interesting. Um if I'm going to give a favorite and least favorite episode of season one, uh, I'm going to start off with giving my least favorite episode to episode 11, The Trip. Uh, let me backtrack a bit. When I say that, I'm talking about the episode, not the podcast episode. I had a lot of fun over each episode, but just in terms of me watching as I sat down and you know tried to formulate something to talk about... Um, it felt sort of out of place amongst the season and didn't give me much as a podcaster and a funeral director to chew on. I'm going to give my best episode to Life's Too Short, episode nine. Um, you know, that episode, despite, you know, you can detract, subtract Claire's storyline from it and the episode would not change much, but I love Nate and Brenda touring the funeral homes. That was fun to talk about and allowed me to lend a lot of funeral industry insight. Uh, Ruth taking ecstasy by accident and, you know, David seeing Keith at the club for the first time since their breakup. Uh, I think I give the nod to this episode because sort of like at the end of episode seven, Brotherhood, when Nate just took David just to hug him, to tell him he loves him, that sort of stuff. And again, this placates the idea of where you are in life. Uh, you know, when David, Nate went to go hug David and here in episode nine, when Ruth sees Nathaniel in her ecstasy state of mind, uh, you know, it, it it makes my heart happy just to see a character. I, I, I'm watching these episodes. I'm taking a journey with them. And it just made me feel warm inside, you know, uh, just really happy. And when Ruth sees Nathaniel in her dream and they have, you know, sort of a conversation of, you know, go chase love. Um, I felt like that's when Ruth made her jump from 
old Ruth to new Ruth. To move on uh, to basically as far as season two goes, um, let me say this. Uh, this matters majorly when you're listening to this. If you're listening to it as soon as the podcast comes out, this applies to you. If you're listening to this in the future, this certainly does not apply to you. But I'll be taking a week break in between. Uh, the podcast has been a bigger job, uh, a part-time job of sorts than I expected when I started out, uh, which is good. This is a hobby. I love podcasting. I love this show and I love being able to talk about it. But I will say, uh, you know, in this week break that I'm going to take, be on the lookout. Um, I have, (laughs) let me just say this way. I have a nice surprise that'll be coming out. Uh, If I could hint at it of sorts, I'll say I have a guest that I had on from season one coming back with me to discuss a, a movie. Uh, if you're a fan and want to know more about the funeral industry, definitely tune into whatever I end up posting. Uh, I think it'll be fun for everyone involved. But season two, on, on the podcast side at least, I have some great guests lined up. Season one was a total figure-out-as-you-go work in progress. Uh, I had guests drop out at the last minute, recordings cut out mid-episode, and you know, this entire thing is a work in progress for me. Uh, I'm brand new to this, and... I've been having a lot of fun so far, but as season two goes on, I have some really great guests lined up. Um, just to you know, give you a background of who I, I have an actor coming on. I have a casket salesman. I have hosts from other podcasts coming on. Uh, I have a host from a Star Trek podcast coming on, which should be an interesting episode. Uh, I have a host from a, a, an embalming podcast, a host from a health podcast. Uh, I even have a fan of the show coming on, and he's a fan of the show and, more importantly, the podcast. And, you know, we sort of grew a relationship of sorts, just talking through emails back and forth. And uh, I really liked his insight into the show, and I think he'll give some great insight on the episode he's on. The most interesting guest... I'm going to have for season two uh, is the host of the former Fisher cast. Fisher cast was a podcast on the show six feet under, which aired about five years ago. Uh, their podcast was on the show and I managed to get in touch with them and I'll be having a few of those guests on and possibly a reunion show. So if you want some more six feet under talk in the week break that I'm going to take, uh, go check out Fisher cast, uh, a really well done podcast on the show. Lastly, just as a heads up, and if you're a Reddit user, I recommend you go check out an AMA I'm doing. Uh, It's going to be on January 30th. Uh, I don't have an exact time as of yet, but if you're on the East Coast, figure morning time, early afternoon, you know, uh, follow me. If you want to follow me on Twitter at Digging Podcast, I'll be tweeting out the exact time. Uh, when, and you know, and the link when it comes available. So definitely uh, keep that in mind. So with that being said, I'll be signing off. Uh, I'm going to be airing the rest of the interview I do with Robert Dean. Again, um, a really interesting and creative author. And if you listen to the interview, uh, if you want his book, again, just go post the episode 13 podcast, tag us in it, and we'll send out a signed copy to five random listeners. And let me also say, if you don't win, still pick up his book. Uh, I really think you'll enjoy that. So with all that, take a listen to the rest of my interview with Robert, some great insight into an author's mind. And Thank you. Thank you so much for following this journey with me. And I hope season two is just as fun for you guys as it is for me. Thanks, guys.
Robert's latest book is The Red Seven, and while unfortunately I only had time to get through about halfway, it's it's a really interesting book. Uh, I'll let Robert, you know, explain more of you know where he's coming from with that. But let, let's backtrack a bit, uh, Robert. Let's what's the Red Seven about? What's the uh, how would you explain it to people? The Red Seven, I explain to people, is a Western for people that don't like Westerns. Because I really, I think the Western is a really interesting genre. It's a part of American lore. If there's two things Americans are good at is, in terms of the literary sense, is the Western is classically ours. And even though the, like the mystery crime novel, a lot of uh, nationalities own it, as Americans, we are the ones who perfected it and made it what it is with its roots in noir. And so... Those two genres are very interesting to me, and I wanted to write a Western that didn't feel cheesy and hokey. I wanted it to be something that anybody who just likes a good, dark story could understand, and I wanted to write it from a place that felt like a Quentin Tarantino movie, but Hmm. also held the literary merit of something along the lines of Cormac McCarthy, which is a feather in my cap that that book got compared to Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and its style and tone. It's not, it's readability, but it's just the fact that if I want to go all pros and huge, there's, there's spots in there and getting that comparison is obviously to any writer is incredible. And I wanted to write a book that dealt with more of the psychology of loss. And it's the story of a bounty hunter who he collects a bounty on a guy and that guy owed money to a gang. And so the gang, feeling like they were more bigger and powerful than the bounty hunter, took their retribution out for losing money by killing his family. And so it's a story about a person who's going and killing each member of the gang, hence the Red Seven. So he kills seven men. But mm-hmm. it's not just about like murder and vicious violence. There's a undertowing of what loss can do to someone and how it can drive a man who his job is to be cold, but taking that cold calculated killing and and putting a sense of ache and personality behind that. And that was interesting to me is to like tell a very psychologically rounded story. When you say that, um, you know, I, I, part of it, again, I'm only halfway through it, but there's a lot of psychology on, and we'll get into it of the character, the ghost. There's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of backstory on him or, or there's a lot of, like you said, the, the, the effects of loss and, you know, you kind of go through that journey with him. He's not just, I mean, he is a, a, I could say a cold-blooded killer, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fair. And, but you also see the other side, the, the side you usually don't get to see in that where he is, he does have emotions. He's not just that the killer. He also has all this, uh, yeah, how, I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but how, that loss affects him as his days goes on. Uh, Robert, if I'm quoting you correctly, you are a New Orleanian living in Austin exile. Yes? Yeah, that's a fair way to say it. <laughs> I, I, uh-huh. I'm I, not from New Orleans, Okay, but I moved to New Orleans after Katrina, and I consider New Orleans my home. It ever, I don't miss New Orleans. Like I consider it my home, and I miss it every single day. There's not a day I go by where I go, yeah, I'm over the New Orleans thing. No, I've been here for three years, and I still miss New Orleans every day. <laughs> uh, you know, do, doing the research on you, and you know, especially from the book, you had said on the the 288 podcast episode that you did that. 
you know, your ashes will be spread in New Orleans. That that's how much you want to maybe not born there, but die there, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I got an. Um, I just wrapped my third book, and I'm working with a really esteemed editor, and mm. I'm after it, man. I'm like, some dudes are just super psyched. Or I shouldn't say some dudes, some writers are just psyched to have something published, which I've been very fortunate to have twice. But mm. I mean, I'm. I'll be the first to tell you, I'm after it, dude. I want to have a book on the bestseller list. And I want to have the ability to do things because some people want to write a bestseller to get rich and famous. I want to write a bestseller so I can afford to move back to New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, and you had mentioned that to me, and that's uh, I I'm someone who appreciates that honesty as opposed to it just solely being about the love and whatnot. But you know, people are people, and people have goals, and like, yeah, that's your goal. You you dude, I. I, I don't be, like I know some really great artists in all genres that crush it. They do incredible work. They do things that inspire me and they blow my mind and they do stuff that just absolutely is incredible and that's fine and well. And I try really, really hard to be competent at my craft. Like I work extremely hard to be a good writer. Like I listen to interviews with writers and try to glean secrets from them and I read constantly <laughs> and I read a perverse amount and because I'm constantly like, if you think of that Rocky dude, like, on the steps, hitting the meat with the fucking hands, that's me with writing, man. I'm in there every day trying to, I'll write people for free, I take jobs for shit money and do stuff yeah, just so yeah. I can continue to be better. And that's that thing is, like, I've always held myself in the esteem that I'm after that conversation. When people talk about, like, Burroughs and Bukowski, and they talk about people in the crime genre, like you know, Dennis Lehane. Like, I want him in that conversation. I'm mm-hmm. not fucking around. I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm not fucking around. I'm after that shit. And, no, I love it. Go on, go on. And it's just like, I do it for the art. I've been after it for 16 years. I'm, you learn, you grow every single day. But I'd be lying to you and I'd be lying to everyone else if I was like, no, man, I'm happy not making money. No, dude, that shit pisses me <laughs> off. I want, like, I don't give a fuck about winning an award. I want to win the Bank of America award. Because people are reading my shit and they like it and they want to like have a relationship of honesty and discourse and see people because writers used to be these public figures of thought and people respected what we did. Hunter S. Thompson was a man that people brought him on to talk about his how he thought the world was. Studs Terkel was that man. Mike Royko was an old newspaper man in Chicago. I'm sure you being from New York, you grew up with old newspaper men yeah. who when they would write these editorials people respected that and took that as like cultural law of your city. And I grew up on the South side of Chicago and like those old timers, those are my heroes from when I was a kid. And I'm after that kind of shit, man. Like we're living in a fucked up, we're going to have a whole weird universe coming up in four years. So as far as I'm concerned, if you're a sellout creative who won't take a stab at like establishing who you are and what your motives are, you're in the wrong fucking game as far as I'm concerned. When you had said about, you know, respected writers and whatnot, and it's it's a whole nother, you know, this podcast is, you know, specifically for Six Feet Under, but, you know, uh, I would love to talk to someone who's more educated on it than me, and it sounds like you are, obviously, uh, just the way that direction is heading, because it's unfortunately, correct me, correct me or where I'm wrong here, or, or you know, it's diminishing minds like yours, right? Yeah, like I mean, there's we live in a culture of perpetual idiot idiocy, 
And <laughs> we do. And it's sad. I mean, that's how that dude got it. We literally elected a man who his entire fucking thing was to tell people they're fired. And he got perverse <laughs> pleasure out of that and established a persona. Do you think that it's in behind closed doors, a guy who takes pride in that, who's walked every red carpet, has gone to every shitty television show premiere, his own or ones he's produced, you don't think it's rubbing him the wrong way that no one will come to and perform for him? Or that, like, <laughs> he, ele- he elected himself on the back of the worst of America? Like, that's insane to me. And because, like... We're a fucking society of Starbucks drinking idiots. I'm not saying Starbucks is bad. I had it earlier. But when that's your cultural fucking denominator of how you glean in like all things, that's just appropriation of where we are through idiocy, where we are as a society, man. And it sucks. There's a lot of really good subversive art that's hopefully going to come out of this. I'm hoping punk comes back in a big way. Because punk's been dormant forever and has not had that moment. But I'm just hoping these kids that are going to grow up with a Nazi as the president are necessarily <laughs> going to find, you know, they're going to find that footing. I mean, there was things I saw in that. I th- oh, I'm sorry. Huh? I'm sorry. It, it, cut, it got cut off a little bit. I didn't want to cut you off. Uh, I was just going to say, if, if, if I could bet, if I could see in the long, that, that's a great point you brought up that. Like, yeah, I, 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 w- I would bet money or I would bet strongly that the punk the whole culture of that is going to come back. And, you know, you kind of see the ground roots of it right now. Yeah, man, I, I'm in agreement with you. And it, it's not to not talk about it. It's just we could go on and on and on about it. Uh, I'm with you in everything you're saying. I, I Like I said, it's since since we're talking about the, the, the meat and potatoes of your podcast is talking about Six Feet Under. There is one thing I kind of learned not to jump at topics and things. But a big thread of like that episode I watched was like, this dude coming out and yeah, yeah, that dude coming out and that guy, like, I don't know shit about six feet under, mm-hmm. but I really liked that episode. I was like, this is actually pretty cool. And I watched it and I thought about that. That was in 2002. And in 2017, we live in a completely, we've evolved on that stuff. Like we are socially evolved that coming out anymore is not a big deal. I mean, it is, trust me. I am not making, a light of when somebody chooses to come out and they're like brace their sexuality and they have a lot of social factors. It still sucks for a lot of people, but yeah. on the whole, it is a much less deal than it was at that time. And we've evolved there. And now the fucking ape in charge is probably <laughs> going to send us back to whatever stone age shit that people are like, well, you know, and he, that dude was even for gay rights, which is cool. That's his only thing that he's semi respectable on. As you can <laughs> clearly tell, I'm a fan <laughs> I I I let let me close it out with this at least on this thing. I would like to think the better in people and Dude, I want to be wrong. I want to be like unbelievably wrong for putting a Bernie Sanders sign in my front yard. I want to be like, "Fuck, man, why didn't we see Trump?" Like I voted for Obama twice and I was like, I got teary-eyed watching the guy leave cuz Obama's like watching, you know, that movie actor president that you're like, "This dude ain't even real." Like, he's that good-looking... Sw- I've met Obama, and he's that good-looking, smooth-ass dude with a beautiful wife. When people say shit about Michelle, I get personally, like, offended. I'm like... Especially because I'm from the south side of Chicago, too. Yeah, and yeah. I watch this guy leave with class and grace, and this fucking clown car pulls up, and you're like, all right. But anyway, that's not... This is not a political discussion, me bitching rant, but it's still... I hope I'm wrong. I hope to God I'm wrong for the sake of my kids.
Yeah, yeah. I know I'm with you. And that's what I was saying going into it. And I hope I'm wrong. And now I'm at the point. It's like, please help me. Help me try and be a part of this. Like, invite me into it. And I just, <laughs> you continually feel excluded. I don't want to cut you off, but let's let's end that there. Let's let's go to promoting you and, and promoting this podcast. And something I had talked to you before, what, what I wanted to do is kind of do a the first giveaway on the podcast and how I wanted to go about this was, you know, we will send you a signed copy of Robert's book that he just talked about the red seven and how we'll go about that is you post this episode, you know, not, not the the entire podcast, just this episode with Robert on it and post it on, if you're going to go on Twitter, it's the most accessible way for both of us. I'm at Digging Podcast. Robert's at Robert underscore Dean. Uh, if you're going to use any other forms of social media, post it, screenshot it, email it to me at digging 6 feet on their gmail.com. And what we're going to do is pick five random winners and, you know, we'll send over the book. <laughs> kind of like we were talking. I'm not trying to be gimmicky and I don't want to pretend like what I'm asking for is for you to promote us for us. But... Yeah, like promote us and the Come on, way I be honest, you, you need people <laughs> spread the word that people don't like. That's that misnomer. Whoever's listening, look, it works like this: your friends trust your judgment on shit. You can sell exactly. people all day long on what you want. You're like, oh man, this is great. I'm putting money behind it. But if your friend is like, no, I gave this a shot. It's really good. Those are the people who are gonna empower you to make better choices. And that's what I'm saying. I don't want to sit here and just pretend like, oh, you all you have to do is do this. It's like, no, I'm actively telling you. I'm trying. I, the way I looked at it, and if you're a fan of The Office, I called it like a Michael Scott, you know, win, win, win. You post about the podcast. You spread word about the podcast. People will listen to the episode. They'll hear about Robert. You, in the end, will get a book, and it just so happens to be signed by Robert. Win for all. Send us over. Tag us in on Twitter and if you post it anywhere else, email it to me. We'll pick five random people throughout the week. And, you know, even if you don't get a copy, go ahead and, uh, you know, buy the book. Uh, you could, if you go, if you go to Robert's page on Twitter, you can find out through there how to buy it. Or do you have something easier to say than me just telling people to go to your Twitter? To just go to Amazon. It's the cheapest. You can get it in bookstores. You can uh, get it from Barnes & Noble. But honestly... Just go to Amazon. It's ten bucks. It's it's usually like a dollar shipping or something stupid. If you have Prime, it's free. Um, yeah, it just depends on what your medium is. But you can go to your local bookstore and order it. It's in certain cities. It was it was carried here in Austin. It was carried in New Orleans, and it was carried in Florida, where my publisher is from. And it sold out in all the stores, which is awesome. Yeah, just order it off Amazon. It's easier. It's the safest fastest bet and then you don't have to deal with bullshit waiting around you can have anything in amazon in like two days so just do that <laughs> all right and then robert uh like i said I, I i i only had time to get about halfway through it but there is things i wanted when i you know when when we hooked up about a month ago and i knew you were coming on there's I'm always I'm I'm the type of person I'm always interested in behind the scenes. You know, when I had gotten CDs growing up, uh, the first thing I did was, you know, I would read the I would open up the uh, what do you call that the little the liner notes. Yeah, and I would be like, who produced it? What's the sample? And when I say what's the sample, I'm talking about obviously the the Puff Daddy, you know, that whole thing. But my biggest thing was I always wanted to know who That's did a New this. Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> Puff Daddy <I> want- reference. <laughs> 
But I'm someone who's always, you know, like I just said, always interested in behind the scenes. And what I, what I, to relate it to the question is, how do you, how do you, for, so you have, let, let's start with the character, the ghost. How do you, how do you shape that? Like, it's different in, I'm, I'm you know, I'm coming from a, a fairly uneducated place. And when I mean that is like, you have, uh, let's just say a TV show or a movie, you know, you could have a, a physical embodiment of a character you have fucking let's pick an actor you have brian cranston he's there you could see him and you could kind of shape him and go off that and he's an influence to to your writing you you're writing this book and let's stick with the character the ghost just because he's the main character of your book like how do you go about it how do you in your head do you have like this is how tall he is this is how big he is this is how he sounds does he have a you know whatnot like how do you go about that part of it um, well, I think the easier way is how I write the book because I write all books with the same thing in mind and then the characters kind of tell me who they are. And basically what happens is I get into an idea of what my story is going to be about. I'll get like a little kernel, this just tiny idea, this light bulb moment of like, okay, this is that thing. Let's sink into this. And so... I get this basic tiny idea with the Red 7, it was, I'm going to write a Western. And then I had to go, all right, but how do I write a Western? What? How can I make this innocuous genre that people have either done really great work or really boring work with? How do I do that? And so then for the next six to eight months, I'll read so every single thing. I'm in my office right now and I'm surrounded by probably a thousand books. Mm-hmm. And I've got piles of for the book I'm reading right now and editing. I pick books purposely based on what I feel like value I'll get from them of like, is there a psychological lean to this? If I'm reading nonfiction and it's about like the psychology of loss or is there different things? So like I'll watch a bunch of Westerns. I'll watch movies that I feel will influence me positively. I'll read things. I'll read newspaper clippings. I just... I'm a constant cipher of all forms of media and I take a ton of, a ton of notes. So my phone is full of notes. I got scraps of paper with notes fucking in my pockets. There'll be receipts with a note that I had to scribble down if I can't find my phone, which is impossible because mm-hmm. we always have our phones in our hands and mm-hmm. every little bit of notes I can. So I'll end up with like when it's time to sit down and I feel like I've figured out the story. So it's like the plot of the story, it's character attributes it's names, it's places, it's an idea, it's a bit of dialogue. So after I feel like I've gotten enough, I sit down and I put it all in a Word document and then I print it out and then I just look at it and stare at it and think about it. And so then I'll build out the story and then in my head I'm like, okay, these are the people, here's their names. So I give everyone a name and then I figure out what this person's motivation is, what kind of person they are, and then I let them talk for themselves. And with the ghost it was like, Okay, I was watching a bunch of Hell on Wheels. So Anson Mount, whatever his character's name, there's a little bit of that. I liked his hat. And then I read uh, Flannery O'Connor's um, Wise Blood, and it was about an old preacher who like did things to himself to prove his loyalty to God. And so I, I took those ideas and character attributes, and I kind of mixed them together. And then I was like watching a bunch of Josie Wales movies. And then I was like, okay, the ghost in my head is Tom Hardy. So how would Tom Hardy do this? And so all these different things started going in piece by piece by piece by piece. And as I'm building the story out, 
these characters become complex and I gave them the bones and then I let them start talking to one another and then they dictate their language from there on out. Yeah, that's crazy. Cause uh, you know, part of, part of that, que- you kind of knocked out two questions in one. Cause my other process, my other question was going to be, how do you, how do you even formulate the story? And uh, you know, I, I was just comparing it to movies or TV, you know, where it's just that they have, they have a set design, everything you're doing, all of this, is it fair to say, like in your head, in your head, in in terms of your writing and everything, but it's all there's nothing physical to touch and see, you know. Yeah. It's just kind of all in your head. Yeah, it's all in my head. I mean, I was, I'm very, I, I'm not, I hate the term blessed because I feel like it's thrown around a little too much. <laughs> kind of like the word awesome, because awesome used to mean like world shattering shit, and now awesome means a good slice of pizza. Um, <laughs> but. I feel like I'm blessed in the sense that there's a style of writing that I am. Uh, I think it's because I'm influenced by so many different things. Um, mm-hmm. Elmore Leonard is renowned for because he writes like you're watching a movie, like in your ears you're reading his shit. And Stephen King is the same way. That's why those guys are successful. Is that you read it and you don't feel like you're reading a book. You feel like you're reading a movie. And I don't know if how that translated but those two dudes are two of my biggest they're in my top five influences and i write like that too and so i'm extraordinary lucky and blessed in the sense that like i have that thing like yeah can i write prose that's so purple and cormac mccarthy commas and huge fluffy flowery sentences i can do that and it's in my writing too i i pepper it in but I'm very, very fortunate in that I can write a scene and make it feel like you're watching a movie and get lost. And when I think about like a room, I can think about a room and how I describe a room, but I try to focus on the details of the room because that's mm-hmm. what lends the humanity to how you feel. Because somebody can be like, it was a dark room, there was a chair. But if you're like, <laughs> yeah, there was a dark room and there was a chair, but sitting on that table was a uh, People magazine from 1987 and a picture of uh, Bruce Willis was on it when he had hair. And the uh, guy who's sitting looking at the magazine goes, I remember when Bruce Willis had hair. And he looks to the other dude and goes, when did he go bald? And then they have a conversation about Bruce Willis going bald and if being bald is cool. We've completely yeah, okay. turned the dark room into a facilitator of a conversation. And then you add another thing about the light bulb hanging naked atop them, acting as a, uh, the judge between their two uh, swaying conversations. And now you've just created an entire element to something out of nothing. It, it seems, uh, and I guess because I'm not obviously a writer, but it seems it seems exhausting, but in a good way, because you're just you got to keep letting your mind flow. Keep you keep just you you have that black room, but your your mind it, exhausting in a good way. In that you just it, it just keeps breathing, and it, just as you were just explaining this black room, and I was I was there with you just trying to hear it out. Where and in the People's Magazine and everything, um, it's just constantly letting it go. Uh, let me ask you this then: How do you know when to cut it? How do you know when that? Let's you know. Let's take that fictional scene you just created. How do you know when it's going too far, or it's not? Let me just put it this way: How do you know when it's not good? Uh, well, you should always read your writing aloud to yourself to get an idea of tenor and pace. But honestly, that kind of shit comes with practice, man. Like people will say it time and time and time again. If you listen to writers, you got to read a ton. Like reading obsessively is how you get to be a good writer. You learn timber or tenor and you learn 
language fl- language should flow like music and because it flows like music you learn when to take natural breaks and move on to things and when something gets tedious like yeah i got editors man people have to edit me so i because i'm known to like go along with the thought or just not shut the fuck up as a person so my needing an editor is one thing but it's just practice it's one of the it's a thing it's no one was born a good writer no one was born a good baseball player you know you had to learn to throw that curve and you got to learn how to be able to solo on a guitar writing is no different it's just it's practice and being obsessed with okay let's tell this interesting scene let's tell this story let's be effective and because we're effective that is not something that was taught that was earned through time to like be able to write effectively and still keep people interested. Now, when you say the practice whatnot, I want to, this would kind of blend into my other question I had. Uh, the times I did try to write, and this is obviously coming from a, a way novice, novice, you know, person who didn't go much further than writing a few things here and there. What I always tend to find was anything I would start to create, it was completely self-represented. When you were saying practice and something when I would write sometimes years ago, I always ended up writing the character would always be me in the end. You know, it was whatever. It was always my thoughts in it and whatnot. I say that to say this is a revenge story you were saying. and It started the, the birth of it. The genesis of it was that you wanted to, it to be a Western. Was any of you... I'll stick with the main character, the ghost, but was any of you in the rest of the book? And the second part to that question is, is that something that happened to you when you started writing? Is that something you, like you said, with practice, is that something you learned to take away from and remove yourself from it? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, two things that were indicative of when you're writing and learning to discover your style and to break out of those trappings. For one, we copy our favorite writers when we're first starting out, man, Mm -hmm. if you look at my old shit, it is me trying so hard to be Bukowski. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Like I'm just trying and like, I'm just trying so hard to get that like minimalistic fuck you. I'm always drunk thing. And in some, in some respects I lived that life. I totally pre wife. I lived the Bukowski life. And I think that that helped, but because I was constantly hungry and moving forward and developing and working and working and working, you get out of it. And I think all writers, there's a scent, there's a piece of us in all the stuff. There's like stories or ideas. Like there's a scene in the Red Seven where uh, the main character and his little brother get in trouble for pissing in a hot spring in Arkansas. I pissed in the hot springs in Arkansas when I was a kid. <laughs> I straight up like pissed in the my my mom was in a store and the lady was like, Uh, ma'am, is that your little boy? And I'm just, you know, ass out pissing right in the hot spring. And, you know, like, it's just one of those things. There's pieces of your own humanity throughout all any writer's work. That's totally true. And I don't think in the Red 7, minus, like, little anecdotes like that and little uh, pieces of self-history that I could make work with the narrative, that's as far as that extended. Now, my book prior to that, In the Arms of Nightmares, is a horror novel, and it's extremely dark. It's like the most fucked... I tried to write the most fucked up story that I could. And I was like, I wonder if people are going to like this. Surprisingly, they did. And it people <laughs> bought it. And but, but that book, 
it wasn't about me in tone, but it was still subconsciously about me because I was leaving Chicago, moving to New Orleans, completely destroying my life in Chicago in route to move there. Not in like this like burning bridges kind of way, but saying, fuck this, I don't want to live in Chicago, I'm not getting a regular job, I'm going to be a writer with my life. And doing that, there's a lot of like collateral damage in certain respects of your existence. But that book of a serial killer, like murdering people and making his way to New Orleans, I think that that has a lot of psychological representation years on. Did I see that when I wrote it? Absolutely not. Now looking at it, you know, five years later, I'm like, oh shit, this book is like a, a pre, (laughs) this is definitely planning a path that I didn't realize. Uh And I can say that with definite certainty, but between then and the red seven and all the things I wrote in between and I wrote a novella in between and um, just other stuff and projects and short stories that got published and poems that got published. um, I'm, I'm past that now where my own personal narrative is not a part of the story anymore. I can see a story, get it in my heart and then move on with it. Like I don't even, to be honest with you, I don't even remember half the names of the characters in the Red Seven, and I wrote the fucking thing, and <laughs> I'm so into the book I'm writing right now that I just it's weird. I if I would look at it and I would read that book like a stranger and be like, oh man, I did write that. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, Robert, Robert, the actual Red Seven, uh, in in my head, they they look like a band of misfits. Uh, what's great about reading is I could have any image of them in my head that I want. You know, the ghost to me could be Steve Buscemi, and that's just how I interpret it in my own head, you know. Uh, from different times in the book, uh, again, halfway through, I just want to say that because I'm leaving an entire, you know, half of it out. Uh, in my head, they went from looking like a, a westernized reservoir dogs, also at times... Not as flashy or as commercial looking, but like sort of Suicide Squad. Uh, that being said, what would you say the Red Seven looks like, like in physical form? What would you? Um, I. That's hard because I tried really hard. So I've kind of gotten into this thing, and this is a two-parter. Mm-hmm. So. I've gotten into this thing where I've tried to like do my best to not spell it out. There's some writers that like spell it out so hard they get every inch. I mean, Charlie Warchief is clearly an Indian. I mean, <laughs> that's that's there's no hiding that one. And he's a Native American that's in my head he was kind of along the lines of Chief Bromden meets, you know, the most badass like warrior, kind of like Jason Momoa. Um, this dude that's just stone cold. But in a lot of them, I try really hard to get readers to figure that out on their own because I think that that's more important. I see people in my head like Tom Hardy was the ghost. I'll tell you that straight up Um, because I needed him to be – I I needed that for the character. But Mm -hmm. for everyone else, I kind of envisioned how they were as a person of like – by shitty attributes, not by like – the character that they are as a person. I mean, yeah, there's actors in my head to certain degrees for certain things. Like I was thinking about it the other day. Um, there was a, 
There was a, um, I watched I when my son was born recently. I uh, was on paternity leave, and so I had six weeks, and I binge watched Justified, and <laughs> I'm a huge, huge Elmore Leonard fan, and I finally got around to seeing it, and I was like, oh man, this is great. And there's a character at the end of season six that works for the um, it's uh, what is the name of that actor? He's the he plays the stranger in Big Lebowski. Um, but that actor who plays the stranger in the big Lebowski is like a, uh, he's a crime Lord that's trying to legalize weed in Harlan and, uh, Sam, uh, Sam, fuck. I can't think of his, uh, last name, but anyhow, oh, Sam fucking, not Sam Watkins, Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott's a mafioso, not mafioso, but like a big time drug dealer. And he moves into Harlan and he's got this kid that's with him that is like a stone cold psychopath and he's got this shitty pencil mustache and these crazy eyes man like i fell in love with this dude i was like that guy makes me feel uncomfortable and i really really resonated with that dude and i was like holy shit that's phineas from my book that's fucking crazy like that dude would pull (laughs) that off perfectly and later on even though i read and after watching that despite I wrote it with Tom Hardy in mind, but then after watching Justified, I was like, Walton Goggins could be the ghost easily. Walton Goggins could be the ghost all day long. He plays Boyd Crowder on uh, Justified. He's the main, the, the two main guys are uh, Boyd Crowder and uh, Raylan Givens. They, go, they have this really ad- adversarial brotherhood against one another, and it makes for six seasons of incredible television. And mm-hmm. that, but then... To wit, I'm writing my second, or I'm not the second book, but I'm writing my new one, which is called Tragedy Wish Me Luck, and it's a completely different book. It's 100% night and day from The Red Seven, but the one thing that I've tried to do is keep it racially ambiguous, and the only telltale signs, I never describe what a person looks like. I describe elements of their clothing and their personality and let you figure out through language because I'm tired of certain fucking things in books. I'm tired of white dudes in suits being the coolest fucking dudes on the planet and black dudes being <laughs> fucking thugs in hats. So there are black and white yeah. characters. All the main characters are black and white. I don't spell it out who is what, but I want people to realize that in a, a book set in New Orleans, not every fucking person is white. And I really <laughs> think that's important that fucking... Dudes like, uh, what's his name, uh, Idris Elba is the smoothest fucking dude on earth. And <laughs> that dude is the smoothest motherfucker. That dude does not carry himself in a way that could not be the leading man in any movie that Tom Cruise is not. And so yeah, I wanted yeah. that. I was very, very passionate about making these characters in my new book very racially ambiguous that a, some enterprising director doesn't have to go, I have to cast all white dudes. Because I absolutely did not want that. I wanted it to be a very mixed, socially engaging, racially fucking diverse cast of people that if that was ever to be the dream scenario thing in someone's head, they didn't feel like, oh, there's another white guy story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and almost, and almost detriment, detriment to your point, point my embodiment, embodiment, this is being you know self-indulgent on my end, my, end. my embodiment my of the ghost, ghost was, was Jeff Bridges, Bridges liking True Grit. I'm not saying that, and I will tell you honestly, that played a, the Jeff Bridges and the John Wayne uh, character in True Grit 
also mm-hmm. definitely influenced person personality traits. Like I said, when I'm in when I'm in a mode, I take in every single little thing that I could subconsciously use to twist a character in a certain way. But the ghost is a smooth motherfucker. He is not some old crusty dude. He is like a thirty five to forty year old gunshot riddled fucking badass that when he takes off his shirt, chicks turn their heads or dudes, whatever. And you know, he is not the last person at the party to walk out alone. Uh, New Orleans to me was a, was a character in the book, and to a larger point, the settings of where the ghost goes to me was a character. You know, you would have your your physical people, but then you'd also have just sort of the landscape of where they were. Uh, obviously, we spoke about New Orleans before. In I, I again, I have to keep saying because I'm I'm leaving out such a huge part, but uh, up to the middle where I am. How, how did how did New Orleans play into to writing, you know that scene where the ghost is there? Um, the thing about New Orleans in me is like I have a very like deep deep love affair with that city, and anyone who knows me knows this, and like I want to be known as a New Orleans writer. I'm I'm from the south side of Chicago, from a working class neighborhood, but I New Orleans is my heart and soul. I'm sitting in my office right now, and I'm surrounded by tons of New Orleans shit. There's a fucking flag that says defend New Orleans above my head. There's a skateboard with the city of New Orleans. I have New Orleans tattoos up my arm. And it's a place that I can't escape. And for the rest of my days, I will be chasing after it. And to me, it's the most... I've been fortunate enough to travel, not extensively to say that I've been all four corners of the world... But I've been I've been to some places. I've certainly been all over America. I've been to Sydney. Um, there's cities on Earth that I love and I think are extraordinarily great. But New Orleans has a thing that you can't. So many people try to characterize it, and most people get it wrong. And it's not magic voodoo men hiding out in alleys. It's not fucking finding your dreams in a bowl of gumbo or some jazz man bullshit. It's the fucking <laughs> sense of pure depravity. And the fact that anything can happen at any second in New Orleans at any time is what lends itself to the to the mystery. And to tell that in the right way has become like almost an obsession of mine. And I think when people talk about New Orleans, the experience that they're looking for is something that they don't expect when they get it. And so to try to like characterize that sense of, yeah, man, you can walk into an orgy in one place just the same as you can walk into seeing people praying in another. I mean, it's it that duality exists, and trying to explain that is not easy, but it's always really interesting and fun to try to do it because, to me, I'm always trying to do that place justice. And by writing about it in a way that is colorful and tries to even get a percent right, is it's very, very important. I mean... If you've never been, it's the most insane fucking place you could imagine on earth. I mean, I hear Amsterdam's great, haven't been yet, but Amsterdam, that fun is legal. The the fun in New Orleans isn't legal, people just don't care. <laughs> I went to I New, went Orleans New Orleans the first time uh, six months ago or whatever. I, I didn't get anywhere near the taste I was supposed to get. I, I, I did the Bourbon Street thing, and I, I wanted to venture off. Uh, Kind of like I'm down in Miami. You're not experiencing Miami if you only stay on South Beach. You're supposed to go outward and experience the weird. As soon as I left, 
I left saying I want to go back and not go to Bourbon Street. Not that there's anything wrong with Bourbon Street, but I feel like on Bourbon Street at least I'm getting the how do I say I'm getting like the commercial commercial vibe and yeah, I man. wanted to get vibe i wanted to get like what you're talking about <laughs> i walked I worked in one on, place there's an orgy and another place there's people praying that's what i, wanted I worked to on bourbon street for eight years mm-hmm. I, I i worked on bourbon street when i lived in new orleans i was working in bars and writing to support my income because i couldn't live as a writer so i had to work in bars so yeah bourbon is just it's a tourist trap it's there to collect money it's the you see some titties you fucking hear some bad music. You have people barking at you in microphones. How drunk can we get you? Soak your wallet. Leave. Wake up. Puke. Can you go? And you go. Oh well, I just saw some the titty show. And what's the great thing about New Orleans? Now, yes, that's fun for the first couple of days, but a whole city exists beyond that street. And so, yeah. I used to be like I used to think Miami was retarded, and I hate saying retarded. That's not a good word to say. So excuse my French on saying it. But I used to have zero interest in Miami. Because I thought of just South Beach and I thought of clubs and assholes in white and fucking horrible dance music that I want no part of. And then I started seeing the stuff where Anthony Bourdain would go there and I was like, I want to go to Club Deuce. Club Deuce looks amazing. (laughs) And like, I want to go to like little tiny Cuban bars and drink really strong coffee and get great food and eat amazing things. That aspect of Miami seems fascinating now. And so I think it's like if you do your due diligence, there's stuff that's there that people need to work to get because I guess uh, it's said best: don't be a traveler, be a tourist. Don't be a tourist, be a traveler. And yeah, that's a great line. It's necessarily, I think that that holds twofold of like your experience with New Orleans, which I hope you get the ex- the chance to either if you're there when I'm there, I'll take it as some shit. <laughs> and uh, I'll t- I'll take it as some shit. I got stories that people don't even believe happened. <laughs> it, it's funny how the two cities kind of parallel because you, you say stories people don't happen. If if you ever, I mean, the stories that come out. And again, I'm not I'm not doing a, a holding our dicks competition here, but the stories that come out of Miami they are so absurd that. And these are, you know, vetted stories and, um, you know, I, I, I bet you have stories that's never seen the light of day, but the stories that actually do come out of Miami, and I'm talking, you know, fucking fuck South Beach, I'm talking outside of Miami, those stories are like, how in God's name did this happen? There's a reporter, and I'm, I'm not doing him justice, but he's kind of that reporter where he just covers these crazy insane stories that's the fun part of it and it's just funny while you're talking just how close the two cities parallel where yeah it's just a great line be 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 a traveler not a tourist and how bourbon street and south beach i've never really made that correlation before until you were just talking i mean there, there's things there there's layers of these cities because they have histories they're not these white bread american places miami was settled by fucking i mean essentially cubans built miami and there's a lot of things that people don't realize that there's a lot of black people that live in Miami. And it's not just this city full of people on the beach dressed in white, sipping cocktails, going to clubs. There's an entire cultural history there. And because of that cultural history, there's a lot of, there's a lot of indicative things there that people could do. And so I think that because of those two like separate entities of thought and there's dirt there, there's grime, there's, there's a culture that's, existent beyond what people are just flying into the airport to go to cocaine on a glass table. There's a whole <laughs> thing there. And 
Like I always tell about New Orleans. New Orleans, the reason why it's so amazing is because it's lawless. It's fucking lawless, man. Like I lived in the Treme, which is the neighborhood outside of the French Quarter. There was um, that's where jazz was founded in that neighborhood, steeping with history. Classically black neighborhood. Only white dude on my block. The best neighbors on earth. Fucking the best like housemate who lived on the other side of my shotgun. Incredible. Second lines would walk past my house. All kinds of shit, and it's just this incredible thing. And I remember. Do you want to hear a really fu- a funny New Orleans story? Yes. yes yeah. Um. So I. I mean, I was living the Bukowski life pre-wife. I was out drinking. I was drinking, writing, sleeping, working. That's all I did. I mean, I just got fucked up, wrote, read books, got fucked up, went to work, got fucked up at work. That's all I did for like eight years, mm-hmm. and. So I went through the Bukowski School of Hard Knocks, New Orleans College, after college. And I was out one night. I was sitting in the Abbey, which is a bar on Lower Decatur Street. Total dive. Get AIDS if you ever went in there without shoes on. (laughs) Dust is on everything. Their t-shirts just say, just fucking relax. Mm -hmm. And it's a total punk rock, metal, goth dive. And I was a known person in that bar for my entire tenure in the city. And I'm in there drinking, hanging out with my usual crew, bartenders behind there, getting just blasted. And I start meet, hooking up with this old cat. And this old cat is like, he, he's like just talking shit to me and we're having a great time, just mixing it up. And the writer and the uh, bartender goes, oh, that's Bobby. You know, he's a writer. And he's like, no fucking way. You ain't a fucking writer. And I was like, yeah, man, just doing this. And it's, I go through like my whole story of, yeah, I moved to New Orleans for 300 bucks and all my shit in my car. I'm writing for a life. And this dude was like, fuck yeah fucking drinks and i'm like yes this guy's buying me drinks and so this old cat this guy's got to be in his 60s or 70s this dude's going toe-to-toe on jameson with me he's like hey fucking punk let's go do some fucking cocaine and i was like no man i don't fuck with cocaine not my deal and he's like fucking pussy and so he would go into the room he'd go into the bathroom blow a hog leg come back and we'd start drinking all over again and he was like just this old fucking tooth and nail rad dude and so Finally, after like breaking the code with this guy, getting hammered, we leave the Abbey and we walk down to Antiques about two blocks down. He's like, you know what, man? I'm a fucking writer too. And I was like, no shit. He goes, man, I'm old school. I was like, well, what the fuck do you write? He goes, ah, fuck what I wrote. And so we start talking and this dude lays it on me. Eventually, this dude is Hunter Thompson's best friend. And I was like, no shit. And he's like, yeah, man, Hunter Thompson was my best friend. And I was like, no, you're fuck, You're full of shit. He fucking pulls out of his wallet, like an old, remember when photographs from your grandma's house, they had like rounded edges? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like a square? Yeah. This dude pulls one out of his wallet of him and Hunter Thompson with guns from like the 70s, man, like prime. And it was him. He's like, Hunter was my best friend. I was like, no shit. And he's like, I don't even know what your work is, man, but you're the future. You got the right attitude. You don't fucking, you don't dream about writing. You live, man. You got to fucking live. And so me and this dude are just drinking Jameson, drinking fucking PBRs and Antiques, going hammer, hammer and tongs, still making fun of me because I won't do cocaine in the bathroom with him multiple times <laughs> through the night. And so he sits there and he's like, you know why fucking Hunter killed himself? And I was like, no, man, why? He's like, because he's a fucking pussy. And I was like, well, that's heavy. And he was like, no, man, he's a fucking pussy. And I it was silent. He goes, dude, Hunter had fucking cancer. And he couldn't let his legend go that he was a fucking, he couldn't be, 
scene is broken down and not Hunter Thompson shooting guns and doing the drugs and the things that you love. Because I have a huge... I'm covered in tattoos. I have two full sleeves and my right arm is all literary references. And I have a huge piece of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That's what he, he told me about the Hunter things. He saw my arm. Because he goes, see that fucker in the car? That's not his fat lawyer. That's me that's sitting in that car. I was there during <laughs> fucking Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I was like, no wow. shit. He goes, fucking no shit. And oh, so wow. me and this fucking guy are going on. He goes, he couldn't take people seeing him broken down and gross. And I was like, yeah. fuck, dude, that's heavy. And he goes, yeah, man, that's fucking heavy duty. So me and this guy fucking drink all night in Antiques. It was like 6 in the morning. He's like, I'm having a party at my fucking, this place I rented. I want you to come. And he like, I mind you, I'm seeing like four by this time. And uh, I'm seeing four. I'm super, super, super drunk. Um, had been out all night with this cat. And he fucking scribbles shit down. I slam it in my pocket. And I walk back to my place seven blocks into the Treme. I wake up face first on my couch the next morning and I fucking pull the receipt out of my pocket and it's like completely illegible. Like you could oh, never no. read it with a, a, you could never read it again. And so like this guy's telling me all night about like writing and future and wants me to meet people and do things. And he's like, I don't even know what you wrote, but you just got the right attitude. You, you are an old school soul with that shit. And so I go back down to the Abbey the next day and I catch my friend who's the bartender from the night before just having some water, shooting the shit with her. And I was like, yeah, man, I never got that guy's name and I didn't know anything. She goes, you know the fuck that was? And I was like, no. And she goes, here, she pulls out her fucking phone. I had drank all night with the original editor of Playboy, the guy who started the magazine with Hugh Hefner. I drank all <laughs> night with the guy who vetted that whole magazine with Hefner. And... I don't think I would have had as good of a story if I'd have went and saw him ever again. That story's too good. Yeah, yeah. yeah wow, that's, that's... <laughs> any idea what could have been on that piece of paper? I mean, Dude, it was like a. It looked like. Remember in like uh, Snoopy cartoons when the adults would talk and it was like just a knot of words. <laughs> yeah, just a bunch of uh, whatever asterisk symbols. Yeah, that's what it looked like, dude. We were oh, both. This dude kept doing blow. I ke we kept doing shots of Jameson, and that's a New Orleans story. That's New Orleans boiled down into yeah, like yeah. one personal experience, and that was that was my life before, like while I was in the mix, like just living like that. That's funny, man. Uh, let's let's if if we're if we're staying with Hunter S. Thompson. Going off your 288 podcast, uh, and I wanted, <laughs> I indulged you so far, and I want to indulge you a bit more. Your favorite author is William Burroughs. Is that safe to say? Um, he's in the. I'd say he's like t top six. Oh, okay. Burroughs, I, is, Burroughs is there. Bukowski's my favorite. Oh, you're right though. You're right though. Yes. Now, now that I'm reading, I don't know why I went with Burroughs for some reason. Burroughs is there. Believe me, Burroughs is a is a definite guy. But he's like tops. He's not in the. He's he's just outside. He's an honorable mention to the top five. So I mean, okay. Then let, let me just rephrase my question. Then, if 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 Bukowski yep. is your favorite author, why? How did that influence you? How did he influence you? Bukowski gave me the faith that anybody could write, and anybody could write. Like I, up until I discovered him, I didn't think that like regular dudes could just write. I kind of thought like smart people could. And I read Bukowski when I was about 18 and I was like, I could fucking write about drinking and chicks. 
this is easy <laughs> enough. And so that like kind of propelled me toward him because I was already like wanting to be a writer and I decided after high school, like in high school that I was going to pursue becoming a writer. And then he came along at the perfect time in that like male centric thing. And it just kind of showed me that you could write about like lifetime stories like grit is totally okay. Cause I didn't know that that world was there. I was just reading like Stephen King books and whatever things came across my desk, but it was not a defined palette of really knowing lots of different styles of literature. And so he opened my eyes up to like Burroughs and him. And then the beat generation came flooding in at that same time. So like he just came in at a very poignant part of my life. Now at this point, do I still love him and adore his work? Absolutely. 100%. I still adore his work. But at this point now, there are other writers that I look to with as much uh, reverence than I, as I do him, but for different reasons. Yeah, you, you grow and evolve, and you should be. You shouldn't have the same. I always maintain something that you shouldn't have the same viewpoint as you had a year ago. Like you're, 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 you're always your life, which will be changing, ever changing, whatnot. Uh, Robert, this is a question. I, well, let me say here, it's something I've always heard. And now that I have, a, you know, an author to talk to, an actual writer, I've always heard that writing is pretty lonely and not, you know, not, 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 the, not the physical where you can't have a family or anything, but just the idea of writing and writing is, is lonely. Uh, could you speak any truth to that? Or is that just kind of a, is the, is the notion of that true? What's your thoughts on that? I think it's, I, I can agree with that in a sense. It's weird because writing is a thing. It's not something you can do if you don't rely on yourself. You can't, it's not like a band where you go through the experience with people and you're like, oh man, well, I, I'm having a shit day and I got my fucking, I got my girl or my brother or my whatever. I can cry on their shoulder. This is our struggle together. Writing, you get fucking rejected a ton, a ton. You get rejected so much and it hurts, man. You work really hard on stuff and you just get the shit kicked out of you because someone doesn't like it and then somebody doesn't want to publish it or somebody doesn't want to put it on their blog and it hurts. Right. And you got to go alone. You don't have, you get the shit kicked out of you and you got to pick yourself up and you have to move forward. Like writing is a horrible thing to like, to like want to do because it doesn't pay well unless you're making money and you're like really hustling to make money. You're not going to make money. It's not like chicks are going to fall all over you because you're a writer. Like, yeah, you play a guitar and you can get laid in an hour. Tell them somebody you're a writer. That's not, that's a whole different thing. Like God knows why my wife loves me. I didn't exactly. Pick, I didn't exactly pick the sexiest art to get into, and it's just kind of one of those things, dude. Is it drives you in a way that is undescribable, like other arts, because you obsess mm -hmm. about it, and you get is lonely in the sense that failures are your own, but your successes are also your own, and you can easily be like, "Look, you didn't do this; I did this." I did. Yeah. So it's it's a double sided sword of taking ownership to your art in a way that you're willing to take a punch and then when it's your time in the sun you might be lucky enough to dole one out once in a while all right interesting uh it, it's something i heard and i'm coming from that that question uh, on a sports angle because there was a writer uh, more of a columnist but he had always, he always said that and it always stuck with me and he eventually moved to radio 
because it was a lot more uh, inclusive. But he he had always just said that writing writing is lonely, and it's just something I've always wanted to hear a take on. And just hearing you say it, it uh, there was parts of it I was like, well, that sounds pretty crappy. You have to really love what you're doing to to kind of forego that. And there there is there is a lot of other or. I don't want to call them jobs. There's other careers or uh, how do I say that? Goals that you, people would have in mind that, yeah, they don't care. Well, they care, but they have the the, the, the drive to move forward of, you know, you're going to get, you know, rejected left and right and that's not, but, you know, you just keep going. It's very masochistic. <laughs> I want to close this out with going something completely off the cuff. Well, not off the cuff. It's different than what we're doing. Uh, I have no idea if this is going to go good or not, but I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions and you're just going to give me your gut reaction. Sure. Have you ever hit on a teacher? Uh, yeah, in college. <laughs> have you ever seen a ghost? No, I don't believe in ghosts. Me neither. This isn't about me. Never mind that. Have you ever kept the tag on You're around a piece enough of dead fucking people to know. <laughs> Well, no, well, uh, I, I, you know what, though? Let me chime in on it. They're dead. There's no ghosts. There's none of that. There's no spirits hanging around and whatnot. If, and if there were, they, weren't be, they wouldn't be at the funeral home. You know, they would be where they died or with the family, but uh, another time. Have you ever kept the tag on a piece of clothing and then returned it? Mm, no. <laughs> ever been thrown out of a bar? Definitely. Have you ever locked yourself out of your apartment or house with only your underwear? No. Have you ever driven off with the gas pump attached to your car? Thankfully not. That is a Darwin fucking award right there. <laughs> Last one. Have you ever logged into someone's email or, you know, gone up to a computer with someone's email there and looked through it? Yep. <laughs> yep. All right, awesome, awesome. Robert. Robert uh, we're gonna pause. A, go ahead. Go ahead. That's a good story. Oh yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was working at. Uh, I first got out of college, and I took a job at a television station. I'm not gonna say the name of the television station for this to come back to me. And it was around 2002. And computers weren't like they are now. So this the station was on a DOS system and it was super easy to break. And I figured out people's fucking passcodes pretty easily. And I was leaving. I hated. I was commuting from Chicago and I fucking hated where I had to go. It was a long ass drive. They wanted me to move to the town I was commuting to. And I didn't want to do it because I hated being there. I knew I was in the wrong fucking job. And... I knew that they didn't like me and another guy. It was very apparent that me and this other guy, even though we gave him good work, they just do. It was a total non, not fit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Socially, just was not there. I didn't like them. They didn't like us. And I hacked one. Like I saw one dude's thing sitting up as like login. I was like, I bet you I can figure this out. Took me ten minutes and I figured out his login. <laughs> I was reading his their personal messages, and they were talking shit about us. And uh, the, eventually the boss calls me and she goes, think that's okay? I was like, I don't care if it's okay. But they were talking <laughs> shit about us, just backing up what I thought. And yeah. uh, she, they didn't fire me. That's funny. But I sure yeah. as shit definitely did. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that in any other situation 
other than being like 21 and at a time of being completely full of piss and vinegar and fucking wanting to fight. But now (laughs) I'm just at the point where it's like, I don't give a shit what you think. Yeah. 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 Uh, You get that. And sort of to the show we're watching. You care, your your priorities and whatnot, you care, uh, they, they change at a different age. This show, and you know, we'll get into it, you have a vastly different, you, you were talking about how the character, David, about him coming out, I would venture to guess you have, you would have had a different viewpoint on that if you watched this episode like 10 years ago, right? That's Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that 10 years ago, that was like a cultural thing where people are like oh man that's awesome good for you that they're coming out now people are like yeah it's another fucking gay character big deal which <laughs> yeah, that should yeah, be yeah. the that should be how it is i i don't mean right. to sound insensitive but fucking this i this is not the way that i i want it to sound but it sounds fucked up when i say it aloud all the time gay uh gay pride should not be a thing and i only say that because gay people should just be people we shouldn't have to be like, fuck, we have to constantly reinforce people for the decisions that they make. They should just be allowed to live, get married, do whatever they want, and have an amazing life. Why do we have to keep fucking with people and, like, having to force people to have narratives that, like, you have to do this? Like, if this is this pivotal thing. And, yeah, do people struggle and do they have moments that are heartbreaking in their lives with their journey as a human? Absolutely. Absolutely. The world is a fucked up, scary place. But at the same time, man... We need to evolve as a fucking society, and people need to just accept the fact that some dudes like to kiss dudes, girls like to kiss girls, and guys like to kiss guys that used to be girls, or vice versa, whatever. And coming out shows should not be a thing. That should just be a human experience that is just a part of life. But unfortunately, the level of ape that we're at, we're still coming to terms with that. I really hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did and be on the lookout for the surprise secret sneak podcast coming out in between the week's break I'm taking and I hope you join me on season two. Thank you, everyone.